Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this Wednesday morning. We're going to go ahead and get started today. I have a few quick reminders before we do. A reminder that we've got sign-up sheets at both main doors. If you'd like to be on our email list, if you have not received a weekly reminder, we pretty much every week send out a reminder about class. If you aren't receiving those, you're not on the list. And so please sign up on your way out to make sure that we get you on that list. And if you have yet to pick up one of our spring schedules, it's the purple one, and these bookmarks can go in your Bible that you bring every week, right? Yeah, they go right in your Bible. And then you'll know what we're going to be studying each week, which chapter we're going to be on. And as a quick reminder, the only week we are not meeting is the week of the school spring break. So that's Wednesday, March 13th. Otherwise, we are all together here every Wednesday until early May. So let's go ahead and kick off with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray, God, we give you thanks for this day, and we ask that you bless each one of us, that you empty us out of our anxieties, our stresses, our worries, that we can make some space in our hearts and minds for your Spirit to fill us up, and that as we study today, we will be sent forth from this chapel, sent forth from this church, with a new vision and a renewed hope and the courage to spread your gospel message both here in our neighborhood and beyond. We ask that you be with our friends who need your help. We ask all those who are ill that they may receive your healing touch. And for all those near death, that you may be present to them so they know they are not alone. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get going, a quick little word. How many of you got to come on Friday night to the parish party? Oh my gosh, it was so fun. And we just this morning heard the sort of final total numbers. And so, as you remember, 2017, which was my first one, 2017 was a big marked increase over 2015, and 2019 was an increase over 2017. So we are moving in the right direction. The net profit was just over $51,000 more than 2017. So it's almost, yeah, clap for that. Yes. So that means that the net profit from this parish party last Friday night was almost $250,000. So that's huge and great. We had more than 200 women at some point formally volunteer to help put that on, even people who couldn't physically be at the party. So a really, really amazing thing. That is not really done in almost any other church. It's amazing. And so good for all of you who help volunteer and just good for St. Michael that we have that much energy to go out into the community. So really, really well done. Um, and it's, it's a great, I'll just take a moment too. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks at the um, annual meeting. But along with that kind of good news, we ended 2018 where every one of our revenue metrics was above budget. And so 2018 has just been a really excellent year with momentum and with energy, and we see that not only just generally in the parish, but in the opportunities people have to just be generous and contribute like the parish party, it's all just going up, which is so fun. Attendance is going up, and that is the kind of thing that 
we shouldn't take for granted because it's just not happening everywhere. And so good for us. Something good is happening, and I'm glad that we are all a part of it. And we're going to talk today about what happens when you start actually talking about the gospel in the world. <laughs> it's going to make you feel like going and telling a friend. Okay, so we're in chapter 17 today, and as I noted last week, we are in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And so Basically, what happens in chapter 17 is Paul goes here and there and there. So we're going to divide this up into three sections. Paul is first in Thessalonica. Then Paul goes to Berea. And then Paul goes to Athens. And of course, he's not by himself. Silas and Timothy are kind of around, um, although they don't go to Athens. But more or less... This story is about the way that Paul and his companions go out and evangelize. And so one of the things that I want to first do, because I love them, is get ourselves organized with geography. All right? I haven't drawn a map in a while. So here's my map. So if we just see what's happening here, you've got Mediterranean, North Africa down here. Over here somewhere you would get Israel. And so Turkey sticks out over here and then connects up through Macedonia to Greece. And then, of course, you've got Italy over here. So if we can all kind of arrange ourselves, in essence, what Paul has done is he has gone from Jerusalem. Remember, he was at the Jerusalem Council in chapter four, uh, 15. Paul goes up and around into Turkey. And we remember last week, he sailed from Troas over to Philippi. And today... He's going to go from Philippi to Thessalonica, to Berea, and then down to Athens. So he's, in essence, going around the Aegean Sea. And we know the Aegean Sea from all of our Greek myths. So this is, this is the world that he's in for this second missionary journey. He doesn't get all the way to Italy on this journey. But as you might see, if you look up, if you Google or maybe look in your uh, Bibles to see the paths of his missionary journeys, they go a little farther west each time. So he spends a little more time going a little bit farther each time he takes these missionary journeys. And of course, along the way, he stops and sees his friends in some of these cities where he had visited years back to see how they're doing, to check in, and to answer questions. So one of the interesting things about this chapter, we won't really go into it, but we know Thessalonica as a community that was important to Paul. Why? Thessalonians. Ha ha, yes, those of you who read your Bible. So the letters to the Thessalonians were written very soon after he leaves Thessalonica, is what most scholars think. And so it's important for us to kind of piece that together. I don't want Acts to just be a nice story about Peter and Paul in the first century. I want you to connect what's going on at each of these phases with the other things in the Bible. So when we read about something going on in Ephesus, remember he wrote Ephesians. And so maybe go read Ephesians and see if there's something that makes sense. We've talked about how we have to read Paul's letters in context. When you hear the story today about Paul and Thessalonica, maybe go spend 20 minutes reading Thessalonians because you will see a very clear match 
between how Paul is treated in Thessalonica and how the others are treated in Thessalonica and then how he writes to them in what we know as 1 Thessalonians. That's the kind of connection I really hope that you're beginning to make so that they don't stand alone. They're actually doing things at the same time. Same difference would be in on Sunday mornings. We are now into the prophets, but if you might remember, when we were talking about the kingdom period, mostly what we looked at was either kings, but Chronicles tells the same story. And so we've got two separate tracks of stories in our Bible about more or less the same time period and the same people. We tend to just read one track because the other track's kind of just redundant, except it's not verbatim. And as you begin to get a little deeper into the Bible, if you take the opportunity to read both, you really find that there's more of a richness. Because if any of us told the story, the same story of any of us who went to the parish party, if we sat down and wrote the story of the parish party, it would all be very different. We would all write a different story. We're all right, but we all see it from a different perspective. We experience it in different ways, and we ultimately are writing for a different audience. Even if it's really, really similar, it will ultimately be different. And that's the kind of stuff I want us to start piecing together so that these books don't just stand alone, but they are often in relationship with other things going on in other books. Okay, so now we are on our way to Thessalonica. Paul has not had the best experience up to this point on this second missionary trip because Paul is now known. When Paul was first starting out, Nobody really knew who he was, what he was going to do. And so what he would do, as we note, is he would show up in a city, go to synagogue. When he had the opportunity, he would stand up and he would teach about Jesus. That worked for a bit because people didn't know who he was. What he's now experiencing on this second missionary journey is people have heard about this guy. And so they're not just passively or accidentally receiving him into their synagogues anymore. In addition, Paul has also had made enough civil trouble along the way that the non-Jews in each town are aware that he might be a troublemaker. And even if Paul's not the one making the trouble, if trouble's being made about him, well, he's going to get blamed. Pause right there. Am I really loud? No? Okay, great. Um, I feel like I'm echoing in my face right now, so I'll just keep talking. Those two ideas need to be held together. Paul is both teaching to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. But at this point in time, Paul is known for his antics by both groups. So just like groups may for a time be totally separate until they've got a common enemy, right? If someone, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what we're going to experience in this chapter is now the civil authorities and the Jewish authorities in these towns are going to start to work together and work together against Paul. So we're going to open with Thessalonica. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. Ah, sorry, chapter 17, verse 2. They've gone to Thessalonica, 
and they do their normal. Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So at the very beginning, Paul shows up, He's there a few days, a few weeks, for a few Sabbath days, and he's slowly convincing these Jews that Jesus might make sense. But, verse 5, But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So let's pause there. How many of you have been caught in a legitimate mob? Anyone? Of course, Sally, you have. Oh, you too, Madeline. Yeah. Um, I have never. But I can imagine, as maybe all of us can, that is a scary thing. It's, it's not a few people being angry at you and yelling. It becomes almost this sea of humanity. You know, humans, by nature, kind of love to follow. And so if you get enough momentum going and people join in, you can't stop that. You physically could not resist it. And as they are beginning to create this mob that set the city in an uproar, Paul is now in danger. This is not rational argument. This is not appropriate debate. They have gone from, we don't like your theology, to, we want to kill you. And so this mob forms which sets the city in an uproar, and they begin looking for Paul and Silas. So if you kind of set the scene, they're there in the synagogue, they're teaching and they're preaching, too many people find them interesting. And so now the leaders, who are jealous, go hire some roughneck thugs out in the marketplace. So see what's happening here. You've got the religious people partnering now with the non-religious people they're likely going to pay them to create a big uproar. And so Paul and Silas likely aren't there because they say they can't find them. And so now the Jewish leaders and their ruffians, which I love that word, go and find the people who are helping them. So fast forward, verse 6. When they could not find them, them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Now we're getting serious. It's one thing if you're in synagogue and you're just having a debate. What these people are now accusing Paul of doing is going against Rome. And the emperor. Remember the last time someone was accused of going against Rome and the emperor? He got crucified. Paul takes this very seriously. Jason is a Thessalonica person, a Thessalonian, I want to call them that, a Thessalonian who has entertained them in some way. And so however that happened, we don't really know. But as Paul, Paul's a traveler, so he doesn't have a place to stay. He shows up we know in past chapters, Paul will show up to the synagogue and just 
receive someone's charity, he will stay as guests in their house. Jason's apparently the person who has been allowing Paul and Silas and the others to stay in his home. So he's likely a good Jew who is being hospitable. Maybe he has even begun to understand and believe Paul's stories. Either way, Paul and Silas aren't found, and so Jason gets hit instead. Jason does not get beaten, he does not get imprisoned, but he is definitely marked as someone who is doing the stuff that is anti-Roman, and that's what's really dangerous. The second thing that they accuse him of is being a second king. That is a very worldly argument. And what we will see throughout this chapter is that Paul is now moving from what would be a theological argument to one that becomes a philosophical argument. The arc of this chapter will end in Athens, and in Athens he will end by debating the philosophers at the Areopagus. Those are not Jewish leaders. Those are not Jewish people. They are philosophers of Athens and of Greece. So Paul begins in the synagogue in Thessalonica, but even in Thessalonica, he transitions away from making an argument that is wholly theological to one that will now be acceptable, directed straight at the people who are not church people, who don't even know the theology, but may appreciate the philosophy. Before we move on, any questions or thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Let's look at that real fast. So, verse 3, thank you. Um, what Karen said is that verse 3, the, the reference to scriptures that Paul is using, let's definitely remember these are not New Testament scriptures. These are not gospels. Paul pretty much lives and dies before the gospels are written. Mm, nah, maybe Mark, maybe. But it is almost certain Paul would never have seen the Gospel of Mark, even though maybe it was written before he actually died. But Paul is doing all this stuff with other evangelists, and they're not writing any of these stories down. Why? Jesus is coming. Not coming at some point centuries from now, but Jesus said, I'm going to be right back, right? So if you remember that at the beginning of Acts, Jesus is like, see you in a minute. So he went, you know, he ascended into heaven, and they just kind of expected he's coming. And so they are motivated and convicted to go around and start these churches and to tell people the story of Jesus because he's coming. And so don't be left behind, right? Quite literally, you, you have to do this now because we have no idea but one thing we're certain is that it's going to be soon. So why write anything down? It's only when the first generation apostles, Peter, Paul, and the others, start dying that their disciples say, wait a minute. So maybe it's not right now. And our teachers are dying. We have to record what we were taught. That is when things like the Gospels and Acts are written. What's confusing for us 
is that when you get to the New Testament, what do you see first? The Gospels and Acts. When they were the last of the New Testament books to be written, mostly. Because they are the story of Jesus. The first to be written, all those letters that come after Acts, were written simply to answer questions and to encourage people to go get other people in the movement before Jesus comes back. They didn't write the story of Jesus down because they were standing in front of him. They were just going to tell him. But people like Luke, who was a student of Paul, knew all the stories because he'd probably heard Paul tell them over and over and over again. And so he was prepared to write all of it down once Paul was gone. Does that all make sense? Another important note about that same little bit The hardest concept for the Jews to accept about Jesus was that he was killed. If you think about the story that they would have expected their Messiah to live, it was not what Jesus lived. So we might, we might not have ever wondered what the biggest hurdle was for a good Jew in the first century to follow Jesus. And we might just real quickly, kind of absentmindedly, think it was some of his theological arguments and ideas. No. Jesus' stories and his theology, that was not the problem. The problem was God promised a Messiah. We got all that. But the last time they were delivered, or perhaps all the times they were delivered, was a good leader, did some good stuff, and defeated the bad guy. That's it. That's the story. Jesus, the Messiah, should be the pinnacle of all of that. But what happened? He let himself be killed by Rome. They won. And what Paul's doing is taking that idea and saying, what Jesus has done is not the pinnacle of this world. What Jesus has done is the pinnacle and the everything for the cosmic world, the world beyond what we even see. That is the argument that he's having to make for the Jews. Because why would the Messiah be killed? Obviously, it didn't work. Then, if they get to where the Messiah was killed and that makes sense, why would God give Jesus over to be killed? Man, that doesn't make any sense either. And I think if we are honest, that's not something we like either. Eh, it's fine. It's part of our story, and we might just go with it. But if we really think on this, that's, that's not easy to swallow. I am not going to get to, into atonement theology today, so just put that down. But I wanted just to note that Paul has, as we've seen in Acts, and we see that today, in verse 3, explaining and proving what? That it was necessary for the Messiah, not Jesus specifically, but the Messiah, the promised one, to suffer and to rise from the dead. That in a nutshell, 
is what Paul's having to convince everyone of. Because why would they have thought that in any way? All right. Questions or clarity about that? You've heard me tell you, right, that when I did an education class, they said you had to wait seven seconds for people to form questions. <laughs> Remember me telling you that? Yeah, that's, I haven't spaced out. I'm just waiting. All right, part two. So Paul has escaped Thessalonica. He goes on to Berea. And so just a reminder again, he's making this big loop through Macedonia down into Greece. So he's gone from Thessalonica to Berea. Berea is a pretty simple story. We're going to spend most time on Athens. In Berea, they do what they always do and experience less resistance. So look at verse 11. These Jews, somebody's phone is ringing. I know after last week with all of you telling me to like shame people to turn their phones off, I'm just warning you, your phone goes off, you're likely to have a riot right here. So... <laughs> It was so aggressive before. I don't know if y'all saw that. I think there were like five or six different people said to me before last week's lesson, tell them to turn their phone off. <laughs> okay, okay. So just warning you, we may, have a, we may have a mob here. Yeah, okay. In Berea, verse 11, these Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. Isn't that funny? Just as an aside, it seemed like every single time he goes somewhere, Luke just makes a little note, like the important people believe too. I think it's so funny. Um, so, I, I, for whatever. So, again, based on what we just said about verse 3, look at how Luke actually structures this statement. They welcome the message very eagerly and examine the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Think for a second about the way in which, especially Matthew, tells the story of Jesus in his gospel. Every chance he gets, Matthew refers back to the prophets because they realize, based on this kind of work that Paul did and others did, that the most difficult thing is to make sense of the prophets and their prophecies and how it fits with Jesus. So they loop back to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and you name it in order to say that thing happened to fulfill the prophecies, right? How many times does that happen in Matthew's gospel? I have no idea. Many because Matthew knew, because of this kind of work, that he had to make that explicitly clear. People were not going to connect those dots on their own. That's why we get passages that we read on Sunday mornings from the Old Testament, and we think, oh, I know that line. Like, that line I know. By his wounds, we are healed, right? We know that line. That's, that is what the gospel writers pulled out of their Old Testament tradition, of their tradition, wasn't the Old Testament, of their scriptures to say, remember when so-and-so prophet said that? Look at what happened to Jesus. He is crossing every T and dotting every I of what that prophecy really was. We just didn't know. We didn't know when they said that had to happen, that that had to happen. 
Now we do. And Jesus fits right like a puzzle piece into what God has been doing from the start. That is an idea that will come into play in the next section in Athens. So in Berea, they do all this. However, look at what happens next. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. So as you see on this map, Thessalonica and Berea, they're not that far apart. They're not right next door, but it would not have been too difficult to make the trip between the two. If you look at this map, most of the cities I have named here and that we know from Paul's journeys are coastal cities. That's not an accident. Most of the time, the roads that people used most often to trade were along the coast because it was easier often to move shipments by sea, but if they couldn't, then they would go by land. But it was much better for a city to be able to receive land shipments and ocean shipments in order to make their economy even bigger. And so it would be very easy to travel between these coastal cities because the roads would have been built that way. They weren't having to go through the forest. They were gonna be on these good Roman roads. And so people from Thessalonica came on down to Berea and incited another mob and another riot which put them in danger again. So Paul got out of there. Silas and Timothy stay. We'll find out what happens to them in a little bit. But Paul leaves, and Paul goes on down to Athens. So any questions about Berea before we skip on to Athens? The question is, when I say Paul escapes, is it cloak and dagger, cover of night? You know, that sort of stuff. I, I have no idea. We don't know. Um, it, it would sure be fun if that's how it happened. You know, he's like under the hay in the back of the cart, and he's like, I don't know, Paul. Yeah. You know, I mean, it could have been that, but I doubt it. If you think about those old cities, we've seen them in movies. They're not, they're not that hard to get in and out of. I mean, these are not fortress-walled places. You kind of just walk into the forest over there. I mean, I don't think it was really that hard for him to get out, but maybe, a few times maybe. Um, This seems to not make a big deal, like Paul left. So I kind of feel like Luke's a good storyteller, and if something really kind of fun happened, he would tell us. So my expectation is he just kind of walked out. You know, they don't have, you know, it's not like the police officers are getting texted his picture or something. So, I mean, he just go and they don't know who he is you know they weren't in the synagogue they didn't care and they just missed him is probably really what happened any other questions or observations all right third section of chapter 17 this passage of acts is just about as important as it gets this is a total watershed moment in the history of Christianity. We know that Paul goes to Athens and makes his first real philosophical, apologetic speech 
to the people who are not Jewish, not faithful, nothing. He does so on a rock called the Areopagus. If you've ever been to Athens, you know really the high point in Athens is the Acropolis. So the Acropolis is up on the top of a little hill, and if you look down from the Acropolis, not far, you'll see a much smaller, just rock sticking out of the trees. That's the Areopagus. From anywhere in the city, Athens is one of those weird cities where the Acropolis is in the middle, perched way up high, and everything else around it, it's almost like a moat of buildings around the Acropolis. The Areopagus can be seen just like the Acropolis from pretty much anywhere in the city. The Acropolis was a particular kind of place, a temple and that sort of stuff. The Areopagus was a spot where intellectuals, judges, you, know, you name that, maybe senators or whomever, would go to debate ideas. So these are elite intellectuals. They are the leaders of the entire city, super important within the Roman Empire, and Paul goes to them doesn't get much kind of heavier when it comes to intellectual debate than the Areopagus at this point in time. The intellectual capital of the entire Western world on that little rock. So we need to know all that before we get into what Paul did. So any questions about the Areopagus? I guess as an aside, it's also used as a, to uh, refer to the people who were on the rock too. Not really today. Most of the time if someone names that to you, they're talking about the rock. But within ancient texts, they could be talking about the council or the judges that assembled there too. So it could be people, could be rock. It's most of the time rock. We also, depending on how you translate this, one of the literal translations is Mars Hill. And so if you've heard of churches named Mars Hill, there are plenty of them around, this is where they get their name. It's not some weird reference to the planet. It's a reference to the Areopagus. We have to have a little moment of philosophy before we get into this, which I'm excited about. Okay. Up to this point, Paul has made his argument against people who are Jewish or people who know about Judaism. Most of what he has said is within the context of the Jewish tradition. Like we just discussed, Paul's trying to define and connect what the Messiah was and who Jesus was, to say same thing. But that presupposes you have some idea of Messiah random person walking around, especially in Athens, they, Messiah what? That doesn't make any sense to them. That's not part of any of their tradition. And so what Paul is doing is he's making a shift, as I mentioned earlier, away from what would be a theological argument into something that is a bit more philosophical or humanitarian, so to speak. It's important that we know there were two big groups that Paul addressed at the Areopagus, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who are the Epicureans? We'll do them first. The Epicureans 
were ones that had a theory in which the world was created by the gods, and then the gods went very far away, still exist, but they are very, very out of touch with what's going on with humanity in the world. So yes, world was created. The world was created by many gods through very odd cataclysms, and now the gods are so far away that there's no real relationship here. There's no real praying to gods. They're not interceding in any particular way. They're somewhere, but they don't care. Stoics, however, believed that the divinity in the world existed or rested within humanity. That the human being was the ultimate divine force for good. And that it was up to us to refine and refine ourselves so that we are better and better and better toward ultimate perfection. Any clarity about those two things? Yeah. All right, good question. Question is, we necessarily define ourselves as being redeemed of our sinfulness by God's grace, and yet the Stoics approach doing good and being good as something that is inherently already a part of us. Is that fair? So, I just happened to have preached about this on Sunday, um, so I commend my, you know, sermon to you. We talk about doing good, being good. We basically have those two options. The first option is we trust our gut. And most people will, without any intention of, to, of any uh, anti-Christian sentiment, would tell you that's a good thing. Trust your gut, right? How do you know right from wrong? Well, you just know. You just know what is right. You just know what is good, and you do it. That is fundamentally self-centered because it relies on what we have on our own. Now, it is, I think, very likely that when someone, which is most of us, are brought up with an inherited tradition, we actually do, most often, have a good gut to tell us what is right. But I would argue that we have a decently well-formed gut because we have inherited a faith in which we explicitly say, that is not how you know good from evil. Because what we say in our Christian tradition is we don't know, nor can we on our own actually get to the good we seek. It's only by using a guide that we can achieve a better and better life, better and better behavior, better spirituality, heart and mind, you name it. We have to use a guide. And the guide we choose is Jesus. There are plenty of other traditions that have a guide like we do, that is not Jesus. I think, those of you who were at the interfaith panel last month, 
Um, one of the things I said is that I, th I think we're moving into a period of time where we, we, I think, have to acknowledge that any person of faith is actually more like other people of faith than they are people without. And the choice to follow a guide might be a very easy way to explain the difference. Not having some yardstick or guide in your life means that your life's all about you. What do you think? How do you feel? And we know that we are very easily tempted to be all about ourselves. I mean, that is, look at any marketing at, from pretty much the 60s or 70s on, that somebody figured out that we naturally find ourselves very special and important. And if someone tells us that we deserve it, we're more likely to buy a thing. Well, that has so warped and perverted our entire culture that now we get, and you know, my best friend, Oprah, we, <laughs> she made her entire living on this idea. You are worth it and you deserve it. And what feels good to you, speak your truth, you know, all that good stuff. It's not like it's bad, but I think that we necessarily start from a place where it's not about us. Because we can't do this on our own. And so what God has done over and over and over again, and what I would argue that God does all the time, all over the place in different ways, is tries to reach us. What do we need to be reached? And whatever we need to be reached, I think God's very satisfied <laughs> because so long as we live for others and not ourselves first, I think God's happy. And that's the difference, I would say, between what would be Stoic and what would be Christian. Any other questions or clarity? So let's get to what Paul says. Paul begins to make his argument by considering the way time actually moves. So again, another little bit of philosophy. We, in the West, presume that time moves in a straight line. So what has happened is in the past. What will happen is in the future. We are in the present, right? <laughs> Makes total sense to us. There are plenty of other philosophical approaches to the world, particularly in the East, where time is cyclical. It changes everything about the way you understand God if you believe time moves forward or time is a circle. I will explain graphically. So, if time moves forward, then the way we understand God makes sense. So if this is the past, and this is the future, and time moves this way, we find ourselves somewhere on this spectrum. So this is today. And it makes great sense that God has, from the beginning 
creation, all through things like the Exodus, the exile, and Jesus, God's ark of salvation moves toward perfect justice, unity, peace that passes all understanding, whatever you want to say. And we are part of the ark, right? Martin Luther King said this. It was, you know, the ark of God's just, the ark of God's salvation moves towards justice. And so his argument always was, I'm not going to see it, but we're going to make strides towards what is just. And at some point in the future, we will reach that moment. That's solid Christian theology because time's moving toward what will be God's kingdom, right? Now, what's very important for us is to not say we cannot reach God's kingdom now. That's what a lot of Christians do, right? Heavens later. So you got to say the magic words and get the magic hands with the water so that when you're dead, you go to heaven. It doesn't really matter now. It really just matters that once you're dead, you'll be in heaven. That's, that's dangerous. We should realize that heaven is what we are building actively right now, not some promised, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or something like that. We should be moving closer and closer to it all the time. And that, again, makes sense. We are moving closer and closer to it. And every step along the way, God's not making a mistake. God's getting more and more clear about what we are to do and how we are to live. Okay. If, however, time does this, then God may have had a creation moment here and maybe an exodus moment here. Exodus. And then perhaps here we get the exile. And then perhaps here we get Jesus. Well, look at that. The same thing happened again. And as time goes you get these same moments occurring over and over and over again. So nothing is ever really in the past and not the future. It's both. We might not be in a moment of creation or recreation, but we will be again. And that is where some of the philosophers that Paul spoke to in Athens would be coming from. Paul's got to address that our theology is not this, it is this. It is not cyclical, but instead linear. If you think about this for a second, now pause, just do something separate from Paul. If this is played out, do you now understand perhaps where Hinduism and Buddhism get some of their ideas? So you get reincarnation is not some ugly thing. It's because whatever has been in the past will be in the future again. It just makes sense because that's the way time works. And then Buddhism takes that to another level, right? They, Buddhism, you seek samsara 
or we know it as enlightenment. And you seek enlightenment so that when you finally figure out the truth of everything, you spin off of this cycle and you exist in a different reality and you become Buddha. So just as an aside, that's what they're talking about with Hinduism and with Buddhism is because of this cycle. Okay, sorry, that's a confusing thing. So leave that alone. So now we're back here. So Paul's approaching this philosophical argument where first he has to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Time is linear. God has been working step by step by step to get us to this place. Not just a Jewish thing. This is a everybody thing. Every person in the world. We're all in this together. Take a look at verse 24. I should note that Paul's argument is a sandwich. He starts and ends with what I would call an apologetic, which is the way you might sell something, right? Anyone's ever been in sales? What's the first thing you do to someone you want to buy your stuff? Oh, you look so nice today. Oh, look at your, did you cut your hair? I love that skirt, right? I mean, that's sort of what you do because then someone's like, oh, thank, thank this, yeah. So, in essence, what Paul is doing is kind of buttering them up a little bit, okay? Verse 24, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as an unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right, so you see what he did? He said, I see you. You are such good people, and you are trying. You have been trying so hard. I'm here to help you out. Okay, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. All right. So we just talked about kind of Epicureans and Stoics. He's already beginning to push toward the God who made all things, and we're moving forward. He's creating a linear argument, and he's including everybody. And he has already said, God does not need anything from us. That is a subtle jab at anyone who would say we are more important or valuable than God. Keep going. Paul begins to explain that the sovereign God created everything, and we get to verse 26. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. 
So he has now made the argument again for linear history, not only for linear history, but he's saying people seek God. And over time, people have sought God in pretty good ways. So all of the stuff that has happened before now, you're not to blame for not finding God in a complete way. No, 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 no. God's been harder to see than he is now able to be seen through Jesus. And you got pretty close because God's always been really near, right? Again, not Epicureans, right? He's subtly undermining some of these philosophical approaches. God's been with us the whole time. We just couldn't really see. Now he goes in for the cell. Verse 29. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the argument he's making here is not, you've been waiting for the Messiah, right? Any Messiah language? None. The argument he makes is, God made us. God loved us enough to not go anywhere. And God has finally brought, with his, in his time, not our time, in his time, the moment in which we can really understand his purpose. And why do we need to understand his purpose? Because the end will come at some point. And God has shown us how the end will come, how we will be judged, who will judge us. Because God has elevated Jesus above every other person by raising him from the dead. Yeah, so just as we had noted earlier, and we can see it right here in Paul's words, there is, there is a sense of urgency with Paul's argument. This is not just a nice idea. This is all true, and he wants them with him now because you need to be with me now. The judgment's coming. We know who's going to be the judge because Jesus is different than all the rest of us. What is interesting to note, and what I want to make sure we don't do, is put a lot of our mature Christology on Paul's words. What I mean is, Christology is the way in which we understand Christ. At this point, Paul's Christology is very low, is very, what we might say, immature. Christology doesn't really get developed until more around the 3rd and 4th centuries, or 4th and 5th centuries, with the councils of the church. Up until now, I mean, at this point in the 1st century, we see there's no Christ talk here. There's no real salvation talk here. There's no washed in the blood of the Lamb or whatever. It's all pretty pragmatic. This is what's going to happen. We know this is coming because this has already happened. And this amazing thing that happened, you can't deny. I mean, Jesus was, died and he was resurrected. And so join me because it just makes sense. It's a different argument than he's made to the Jews. 
He's making an argument of sensibility to the Athenians. And then we see, verse 32, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. That's their way of saying, huh, uh, maybe. Let's talk again. That's high praise. This is an idea that has not been presented to these people before. Just, just think about the tradition of philosophy for the Greeks. It's long and very storied. They maintain that philosophy. And so to have this upstart come in and tell them a story about something that is totally new, and they actually treat it as possible, that's pretty good. That's about as good as it's going to get that first time out. But what happens in this moment and why this moment is so critical for all of us is because this solidifies the shift where Jesus' message is most certainly not only for the Jews, but for everyone. And I've already taken up more of your time, so we've got to end, and I'm sorry. Write your questions down. If there's something that is unclear, if you think about something after this and you really want us to address it, write them down either on the comment cards, drop them on the tables, or email me or something before next week. Thank you all. Have a great week.